This Talking Flutes podcast is kindly sponsored by Trevor James Flutes, making life sound beautiful. You can show them some flute love by following them on Instagram at TJ Flutes, Trevor James Flutes on Facebook and at trevorjamesflutes.com. Hello, and this is Talking Flutes, and another in our series, Food for Thought. And I'm speaking from my home on the South Coast, and I'm delighted to be chatting to my teaching collaborator, Liz Walker. Hello there, Liz. Hello, Claire. Now, our, um, our Food for Thought series is like an open book, isn't it? Talking about all things fluty. Um, but we're going to focus again today on teaching. And last time, we were we talked about how we were never we were never taught about how to teach the flute and that we've learned through years of experience and so it, it got me thinking that maybe we should take a, talk about teacher development in general because although we we're a business we're individual or a business we have no yearly appraisals or assessments like in business and we need to work out how to sort of succeed at what we're doing indeed and and also how to set how to, how to set yourself up I mean, maybe some of our listeners are sitting there thinking, actually, I'd like to start teaching. Um, and, and what are the options? What are the things they need maybe to think about before sort of setting themselves up? Yeah, so it, it can be anything from getting your students to organising when you're going to teach, your lesson preparation, payment. Let's talk about payment because you've got some good ideas about payment. Well, I have heard uh, through colleagues that sometimes uh, this can be quite a difficult issue. Uh, and I know that some schools now, rather than having you on the payroll, um, you might get your teaching job in a school. Uh, but in fact, it will be up to you to invoice uh, your your parents. Um, and that can be difficult because then you haven't got quite as much choice. Because what I was going to suggest is that actually you establish what works for you. Uh, you know, you might be somebody who actually quite likes cash in hand each week, or you might be somebody that would much, much prefer to, to see a deposited amount of money going in electronically, or you might want to wait for the whole term to finish so that you know how much you can invoice. So, I, th I mean, there are lots of options if you're setting yourself up as a one-to-one as -one teacher from your home, if you like. Um, but if you're tied into a school regime, then, then you have fewer options maybe about how you're allowed to uh, set this up. But it does make me very cross, Claire, when I hear that teachers are struggling to get payment having taught for the whole term, because let's face it, that's quite a lot of money. And there, I can't think of another instance. You don't go to the hairdresser and say, oh, I'll pay at the end of term, maybe. <laughs> so it shouldn't be as hard as it is. And the fact that it is this difficult is, is very frustrating. So I think what I'm saying is if you can do it yourself, if you can establish the, the payment yourself, I would recommend that you do it in advance and maybe don't have a whole term because that's a long sort of stretch to but it you know it's possible so you say i'm going to give 10 lessons this term and you need to pay for those upfront because then you've 
you've not got that difficulty but if that if that's not possible then then potentially just you know cash in hand each week but that can be difficult because you know we are british and we don't like talking about money and i can imagine that awkward moment that you finish the lesson and you're like hmm there's no money appearing we don't like it so often so often in my early teaching you as you even in my later teaching it was private and you finish the lesson and, and they pack up and they're going out the door and I'm thinking, you've forgotten something. And you have to be brave and say, uh, money? And it's, yeah. it's, it's so difficult. But I think in terms of invoices, um, all through my teaching career, I worked for places that where you would have to then invoice and then yeah. it would take months and months to actually get paid. And it's... They, they, people don't understand that you have bills to pay, you have families to keep, you yeah. mortgages to pay. It's, it's so poor. Of course, nowadays we're not getting so much cash, are we? I mean, cash during the last few years has just gone. So um, it's generally going to be, hopefully, you know, over the airways. I was speaking to, I have, I very occasionally go and have a, um, a session at the gym with a personal trainer. And I was with him on Friday and I asked, because I knew you were talking about, going to talk about money. So I, I asked him how he does, how he works out for the money. So what he does for me is he'll, he invoices me for four sessions at a time. And then we book right. the sessions, which might go over a few months or a few weeks. It, it, it varies. Yeah. And I said, so, so what happens if he said, he said to me on Friday that someone had just canceled. I said, well, what happens? He said, well, if they really can't help it, like they've they generally overslept or they've suddenly woken up and they're ill I will try and reorganize that session but if it's if it's just through lack of attention then I, I will charge for it but 24 hours before notice he will not charge for it the people he's teaching or coaching are knowledgeable about what he's doing and the fact that that's his business and so they they generally don't let him down but in our business they can let you down yeah. Um, especially as I don't think all parents realize that what you do is your job so they yeah. think oh I can't quite get there don't worry about going or or at school if the if the kids just forget to turn up or they forget their food or they forget their music and they think that then they don't need to pay for that lesson it, you have to put down your ground rules at the beginning I mean some people do contracts I don't know whether yeah. you've ever done that I, I've never done contracts, but I have always, uh, I mean, it's actually a long time since, ago since I, I, I regularly did uh, home from home teaching, but I always established, I think, a sort of pattern that they would pave upfront for five sessions and, and providing you keep a register and you've got a really, I mean, I have to, I'm horrified that actually I didn't used to do that, but it, it's crazy if you don't, because you think you know that you taught them that week, but mm -hmm. actually you must write it down and you must be really, really organized so that you can say, yes, I've taught those five lessons and then invoice for the, for the next five. I mean, I, I used to do it in five just because I would get lost otherwise, yeah. but I think it's really important to have that payment up front. And then you can say, you know, you were ill, you didn't come, but you've paid for that lesson. And I think, you know, establishing that sort of discipline and, and as you say, sort of having a cancellation policy and maybe write it all down, make sure that when you start with a new student, you've got a piece of paper where you have, got, have it all written down, transparent, black and white, 
And I'm sure that the best system would be to pay, pay in, in advance because yeah. then you don't have all of this difficulty. And, and with backs payments, I mean, that's that that just should should be to our advantage. You yeah. know, you've paid, so you have the lesson. You haven't paid, so you don't. And then you haven't got that awkward moment. I mean, you're absolutely right. Just occasionally I teach, you know, somebody very occasionally at the end, and they come in with cash, and there is always that incredibly embarrassing moment as they leave. Oh, it's good. It, it makes now it makes it easy. That was that didn't happen when I was when I was yeah. teaching privately. But I think so. You would write out your terms and conditions yes. and give that to new students so they'd know exactly what was expected. Yeah, and I think and expectation is is the key word here, isn't it? Expectation, and again, that organisation. You know, make sure you've got your own register. You know, it it's such a simple thing to do um but but as vital so that you've got no sort of sort of doubts as to when you taught somebody um that, that helps create this professional feel because that's what we're doing it's our profession um exactly. we have to work out um how to succeed how to be a successful teacher rather than just leaving it to luck um and, and illness is such a, a, a you know it's such an important issue right now because we've all you know been been coping with with covid and and again having that established you know if you're ill how how much notice do you give to your pupils could be adults or you know if they're ill how much notice do you want them to give you you don't actually i mean i've heard that so many times if you need claire that's a, you know a, a child's off school ill but they'll come to their flute lesson. I think it's also important to, to write out in those terms and conditions, the T's and C's, you know, please, if you're unwell, don't feel obliged to come yeah. <laughs> to your flute lesson because, you know, that's the quickest way of, of, of these illnesses spreading, of course. Yeah, so that's all, all good stuff. Now, the other thing that just came to mind then in terms of we're talking about, that's all part of developing as a teacher, of course, there were three wonderful books I read which really helped me with teaching. There's one by Joseph O'Connor called Not Pulling Strings, and he's a guitarist. And he talks about it's not focused on guitar teaching, it's focused on teaching, not pulling strings, a wonderful book. The, uh, the flute book that really helped me was Kincaidiana, written by John Krell, which was, John Krell was a student of Kincaid. And then he wrote down all the, the teachings that he heard during his lessons and classes of, of Kincaid. And, it, and it's called Kincaidiana, that's wonderful. And one more slightly serious tome that you need to um, set aside a quiet time with a cup of coffee and have headphones on to read it so that you're not disturbed is called Mind, Music and Education by Keith Swanick. So Keith Swanick is a very renowned professor and he's written a lot of books, but that particular one is, is just so interesting. And it gives you, it gets you creative juices. All those books get your creative juices flowing. And I think when you're, as a, as a teacher, we don't get, generally speaking, as a private teacher, we don't get yearly appraisals. We don't have a, a career plan as such. We can't get promotion. So there are various things I say. I used to do, I used to do an art of teaching course at the Royal Northern and at the, at the Academy. There was always this assumption that you had to teach. So don't assume you have to teach. And that if you, so if you couldn't play, you had to teach, which was a really bad move. So you teach because you want to. And I'd always used to say, you know, okay, so find out who's teaching now, 
Who wants to teach? Who are you teaching? Why do you teach? And what do you teach? And to get people thinking about their process. So you, you, you have to think about this as a business and how you're going to progress your business and how you're going to achieve because no one else is going to do it for you. So, and that's, that's the bottom line. As a, as, a, as a private music teacher, you're sort of, you're on your own. You have to develop your business. That's all very good advice. And, and, and I totally agree with you that there is no, there's no expectations that you should teach. And I think some people go into teaching when you need a little bit of extra cash. It's something that you can do. But if you feel that it's not something for you, then, you know, do something else. On the other hand, I think there's also some uh, interesting courses now that, again, they didn't exist when I was setting out, but uh, there's a certificate for music educators that Trinity College uh, do and Associated Board. They say that they're designed to support inspiring strategies to overcome barriers, and they draw on a range of musical traditions, cultures and practices to break down the barriers to musical learning and look at the diversity, the equality, the inclusion and discrimination. Uh, that's just some of the bullet points that they say on, on those courses. I, I didn't used have to any... do the Associated Board. I, I was a mentor on the first year. It was an incredible package and it, it, I'm sure it's changed and developed a lot that you would meet on three, four, five times a year for a weekend. I was the mentor for the, for the wind. So I had flute players, yes, but also had a bassoonist and saxophonist and a clarinetist. So when it got to the nitty gritty of talking about reed making, <sighs> because they would itemize all the things you had to talk about, it yes. would of course be, be impossible, but yeah. it might've changed. But you, you went out and you listened to lessons and you videoed lessons. You observed a lot of their teaching and there were lots of projects to be done. It was a really good grounding. It made you think about everything to do with teaching. The other one that used to be was the Reading University used to have a teacher term course. Because again, I wrote the coursework for two yeah. of their modules there. I don't know whether they're, they're still doing that. I don't know. I mean, I know that the Guildhall School of Music and Drama are doing wonderful coaching and mentoring courses, uh, which I know musicians have been on, friends of mine. And that can be a really interesting way of sort of uh, maybe opening up your ideas for uh, teaching on courses and bridging that gap between, you know, the, the potential and the performance. We have a and, very, uh, very cool, good course there. Yeah. RCM has got the Centre for Performing Science, where they're looking at, you know, the key aspects of, of performance, but also uh, musicians' health, well-being, development, and effective learning and teaching is, is all covered in those courses. I mean, they, they sound quite sort of intense and... Is your daughter doing That's this? That's what my daughter's doing, yeah. We were talking earlier about we should get your daughter to come and chat yes. with us about I, the course. So I think that would be wonderful. She doesn't, sadly, she doesn't start until September, but she, she obviously knows a lot more about what the course in, in, involves. And it does sound re really, really interesting. And I think if you have a, you know, maybe you are like she is at the end of, of, of her sort of performance uh, stage at Music College, uh, you know, the next thing to jump into uh, is, is maybe looking at, at the more advanced side of, of the psychology of, of teaching, because you know, one thing I do know as a as a one to one teacher in a school, you know, you're dealing with children at if you're in in that sort of field of of teaching, you know, at a very key stage of their development, and our role as a one to one teacher can sometimes 
be greater than the teaching of the flute. Absolutely. Um, because we are coming across, you know, uh, many of their sort of health and, and, and uh, well-being and to have a little bit of, of guidance in that. Sometimes I have felt a little bit out of my depth. And of course, you, you know, in a school environment, you can always get help and flag up uh, somebody that, that maybe you're feeling you're a little mm. bit out of your depth with. Um, but if you're not in a school environment and you've got, you know, children coming to your home and you're worried about it, you know, those pathways to getting the help that you need if you, you know, detect that there's something that maybe is a worry uh, can be a little bit, bit, um, bit more difficult and challenging. So probably the only time they have a one-to-one because at school you're always in a big group. So and that one-to-one -one is so important for them to be able to sort of open up. And part of that lesson that we talked about lesson preparation is how are you? How's the cat who was ill last week? How's grandma who wasn't doing so well? Whatever it was that you're, they, they feel that you're invested in them because yes. as a teacher, you have to show that investment. I think I, increasingly, I believe that Claire, that, you know, yes, yes, you've got, You've got your own, um, you know, ambitions for your students, of course, but they are people, <laughs> and 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 they may have some really traumatic um, occurrences happening in their lives, mm. and and we are one to one, and and it is a golden opportunity in a way uh, to be there for them uh, if they do have a need. It may be that you're the first person that they actually talk to about something. Yes, and and I think the more knowledge you've got before, you know, uh, or as you uh, journey as a teacher in in you know just basic pointers that you can detect that maybe you know this this is abnormal or this needs a little bit more extra help the the better so i think you know i'm i'm very i'm very intrigued to see um how my daughter uh, develops through doing this course at rcm because you know i think the psychology of being a musician and of being a teacher is is really really key actually Absolutely key. I mean, I'm in the process of trying to write a book about teaching, right. which is wow. so hard. So getting this balance between informative, kick-starting kick sort of creative juices, but not being dogmatic. And this, the whole thing about the psychological aspect of, of teaching and, and the, the mental aspect, how you relate with your with your students and how you allow them to open up and get, allow them to feel feel safe and improve and getting the balance right. It's so difficult. But anyway, I'm there's that I'm, balance, isn't there, between uh, criticism and, and praise as well that yes. I think we touched on in our last conversation. It's so important to to be critical. Uh, sometimes I think as a teacher, I believe that's my job, really. You know, I mean, if you've got somebody coming to you and they're, you know, paying good money and I think, right, well, I need to, you know, come up with the criticism so that they can improve, but actually uh, forget that that actually they're just as much they may be coming to you so that you can say that's amazing you know you've you've sorted that and yeah. it's very very easy to forget to be um as positive as as you are um being uh, critical so mm. yeah the, the, this it's it's very tricky isn't it i mean i i've come across many teachers over my many many years of teaching they know what they're going to do within their lesson, regardless of the student. And they just go, oh, that's good. That's good. Let's go on to it. So, yeah, that's sounding nice. Let's do the next movement for next week and, and all this sort of thing. And it's just 
good, good, good. And it's not well done for trying that, but this is, we need to work at this. Or asking your student, what do they think? Because sometimes you can throw it onto them and say, so it's really informative when, you, when someone plays something. It's, it's really important in a lesson to let your student play something, maybe what they've prepared without saying anything, let them play through. And then say, how did you feel that went? What do you think? And it's, it's lovely when they say, well, you know, I've played it better at home, but I do struggle with this bit and I don't quite know how to do this. But I think that I phrased it nicely or I played it in tune or whatever they might say. And then you can go, absolutely, well done for doing that and that. And we need to work on the, the pitch control for this. Or we need to work on the breathing or whatever it might be. And to sort of sometimes throw it back to the students so you allow them to be part of the process, this two-way process, the two-way rapport. Rob, we did talk on our last session about when, certainly when I was first learning, that you, you didn't speak. You just listened. You didn't, yeah. you didn't question, you just listened. And now I say to all students, question, question, question. If you're not sure about something, ask the question, because that's what the teacher's for. The teacher's to enable that, and that's, that's the key. So you've got to be able to ask the questions. And they, they need to be able to, uh, you certainly threw that one at me last week, last time Claire was, uh, you know, they, we want them to be able to do it without us yes we do so, want them to yeah. be in that that stage where they're questioning what they're doing so that they can make the decisions on what needs to be done next and if i think you know that that that's certainly going to in, help enable that um because that's the sort of uh, process you want them to be doing each time they practice what i was just saying you need to be your own teacher and that yeah. if I say anything, it's not a surprise. You say, look, if I say to you, every time you play a top E, your left eyebrow goes up, you should say, yes, I know, I've seen it. So just um, the other thing they can do, or you can do within a lesson, is to record and listen back together. And then you can say, you know, what do you think about, how do you think that went? Yeah, really good ideas. I always think with people, I, I know a lot of very keen amateur adult musicians, including my husband. And I think one of the things he lacks by not having lessons, because he hasn't had lessons for years, is ideas of new repertoire. And I think that's so key as well to be, uh, and that's the joy, I suppose, of our creative ability as teachers, is to know what what's the next, what's the next method or what's the next study or what's the next piece that they can they can go to. And that's sort of being able to open their eyes to repertoire means that we as teachers also need to be really, really, really hot on, on, on what's out there. And of course, you know, we've got so many, so many choices and yet at the same time, we're quite limited with our repertoire. But I've just been listening. In fact, it's on right now, of course, uh, because we're recording on this on the same day as the BFS competition. But last week I listened in to uh, the junior and the school performers and you get so much repertoire. New repertoire was amazing. It was lovely to hear. So I think as teachers, keeping your keeping your mind open, keeping your responsibility to 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 know what's what's out there um, at any given time. I used to go around to, to teacher inset days and it was like jumping in from the frying pan into the fire because I had to give a talk about how to break free from exams. 
And of course, I was always teaching and uh, talking to people, to teachers who were governed by exam boards. And because in a lot of schools, they say, you know, we want our students to do X yes. amount of exams. And, and, and that's how they judge the d- development, which is, which is, of course, wrong. And it's very easy if you're following an exam syllabus to yeah. only use the repertoire in, in that syllabus and not yeah. break free from it. So I would really advise anybody who's teaching to, if you can, get to a specialist flute shop and yeah. go and look through the repertoire. And they've got rooms you can play in and go and take loads of books and go and play through stuff and see what's there. There's new music coming all the time. All the time. And I know that uh, Just Flutes, I'm sure everyone's familiar with Just Flutes, but they do a, a review, a new music review all the time. Chris Hankin is is guides you through endless new pieces. It's so easy today, Claire. It's so much easier than when we started out. Oh, There's yeah. no excuse really for not knowing new repertoire because it's it's at your it's at your fingertips. And then of course there's IMSLP where you can get all the old old sort of um, editions of of Bach, Bonmortier, Leclerc, de la Barre. Yeah. Uh, it's it's essential. I think that's an, a vital role for us flute teachers to be aware of, of new repertoire and old repertoire yeah. uh, methods and and studies and all those Absolutely. wonderful things that we've talked about in the past, the variety of, of repertoire out there. Yeah, and not be restricted by an exam syllabus. No, definitely. It means that you, sometimes you stop teaching the flute, you're teaching the pieces yeah completely different and and a lot of students even now think oh I've got grade eight I've done it all and I haven't even scratched the surface and it's so important to get these the basics sorted before you move on pieces are really the sort of cherry on on the cake aren't they yeah so if you are just teaching from pieces um you're going to be missing an awful lot of the of the techniques uh, that you're and the methods that you need to get to the pieces at the end. So I think, um, you know, it's sort of really important to structure. We talked last time about structuring your lesson. And if you're going, if you're starting your lesson by listening to an exam piece, you're probably not looking at the actual core techniques. So I would like to structure my lessons starting with you know, a warm up or which is how you'd want them to be practicing. So if you sort of think, okay, what do I do when I go into my practice room? Do I start with a piece? Uh, never, yeah. <laughs> you know, you, so, so really your, your lesson, I think it needs to be structured in the same way that you might be doing your own structured practice. So. This is a really good topic now. So let's talk through a typical lesson length is about 30 minutes, isn't it? A typical lesson, not for yeah. not for you, but for exactly. well, most yeah. of the teachers probably listening to yeah. us. So let's yeah. talk about a typical thirty-minute lesson. How would you how would you split that up? I think I would I would start um, very much so by just doing some nice long notes, nice tone exercises. It gives you the opportunity to check how they're standing, how they're feeling, how they're looking. You can then incorporate then in into those long notes the breathing exercises that you'd you'd like them to be doing. You can incorporate into into that you know the the hand position. Maybe it's the balance that they've got. Maybe it's the tension that you might see in their fingers. 
So that gives you a, a lovely opportunity to just get them blowing and, and playing. And then whatever scale patterns or, you know, breaking it down into maybe it's a study, maybe you're looking at articulation. So it depends on, on where you've got, you know, what aspect in that student that you're trying to uh, look at. And that would come in your lesson plan. You know, hopefully you've got uh, a little bullet point for this student okay this student's struggling with little finger position or it's the student's struggling with playing in different keys so or this student needs to help help with articulation so whatever bullet point that you've written down from the previous week just you know start uh, incorporating that in after you've done the warm-up and only then if that that's all covered would i then go on to the pieces yeah, it's interesting you you talk about, you know, you might, you know that someone might be struggling with maybe little finger position. And that's where the notes that we make as teachers are crucial so that you can say to your student the next week, oh, your, your little finger's getting a lot better. It looks like you've moved forward. And they know then that you're, again, that word invested in them and that yes. you you know what you've asked and that they know that they've they've done something, they've improved. And that's where the, the praise comes from. And we need to be accountable. And so we, that's why we need to know what we taught and then how we move on from there. I suppose in a, the only thing I would say in, in terms of this 30 minute lesson, which is totally adaptable and flexible according to what happens on any one day. I like all students to have one little phrase, low register phrase that they love just to pick up their flute and just play very slow, not complicated. So it's a tone exercise, but with a tune. And no. so they can feel where they are. I used to do it maybe, it could be four a pavan, it could be, you know, anything like that. And then you, you can sort of, like you said, check on what they're doing. And then, okay, last lesson, we, we talked about this, that, and the other. How have you got on? Should we hear what you've done? And then so something, that you've something old you say and then you could they think about something new so you might introduce something new and all depending on the time you've got there's got to be a little bit of room for technique so yeah. like you said it could be scales i always say that scales are the most boring thing you can play because it's a sequence and there's lots of sequences that are scales that are maybe a little bit more interesting but that depends on the age group so probably the younger the age group, the more little sequential patterns of scales yeah. and the older and more advanced hit them with it. Do you need to be able to expand this advice to, to whichever level you're whichever going? Whichever level, which is what yeah. we haven't really discussed yet. No, we have, but it, I, I think it's sort of, you know, it, it's very, very important to, that, that I'm hearing from, from, from you. And I think what I was saying is, is, is that organization that you know as the student walks in the door instantly where they're at because you've written it down. And that, that can be hard in a 30 minute lesson to not only deliver that lesson, but also make enough notes yourself so that next time they walk in that door, you can remember them. And, and I think it's really, really, it, you know, it's so challenging, isn't it? Depending again on how many students you might have, but you know, if you've got 20 students coming at you with 30 minute lessons, it's huge. And then of course, you're going to leave, leave that, that teaching and go off and do whatever you're doing in your life. So unless you've made that little, you know, it doesn't need to be much, but you need to make sure that when you've 
finished your teaching, you've got enough notes written down mm. that you can pick it up the next week without looking at them and going, who are you? What did we do last week? <laughs> yeah, I find that the, the more advanced the student, the more they try and get around maybe doing something that maybe you might have mentioned the week before. So you might have worked in depth at a movement of a particular piece and say, yeah. we'll continue this next lesson. And they come with a completely different piece the next, the next time you say. Hoping that you've forgotten. Yes. But I've got it written down here, you see. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So important to encourage your students to write down what they've, yes. what they've done as well. Before so, they leave the lesson. Yeah. We haven't talked about either playing, sometimes playing with them, maybe in duets, or play some music to them. Because sometimes it's good to experiment with different styles if you feel you're getting a little bit stuck. Now, I always say with teaching, it's do as I do, do as I say, not do as I do. But if you can do, it's lovely to play duets. I think so. And, and you know, you sometimes uh, when I, you know, certainly when I started teaching, I used to feel a bit guilty if I just played a duet, thinking that I was cheating in some way. Yeah. Uh, but actually, of course, you know, it's so not cheating. Uh, I think we forget uh, how good we are <laughs> in their eyes, you know, we are the inspiration and that's why they've come to you uh, for lessons. Mm -hmm. I think it's incredibly important to play duets. It's so important for intonation. It's incredibly inspiring for them with tone and inter musical interpretation. Um, but the only thing I would say, Claire, depend, it, you know, regardless of when you start, I, I happen to start at eight o'clock in the morning at Wales Cathedral School. I do not go and start at eight o'clock. You know, you have to be in that room to warm up yourself. Do not underestimate how important it is to, for them to hear you at your best. So mm -hmm. if your teaching day starts at eight, then you have to be in at quarter to eight or half past seven. If your teaching day starts at 10, then, you know, and some schools, I know we, we have a huge problem with, with rooming and I'm sure it's the same with every school, but you have to insist that you have that moment in that, in your teaching room before your first student arrives, because if you're going to inspire them, uh, you can't be playing like a drain. <laughs> so <laughs> I would say, however difficult it is, yeah. uh, try and, and, and arrive at your teaching destination, if it be at home, that can actually be even harder. I know whenever I'm teaching at home, I think, oh, it'll be fine. I'll give myself a few minutes before my student arrives. And then of course, you know, the washing machine needs filling and da 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 But it's important. It's really important to, to, to make sure that your teaching day doesn't start at the time that it says on the piece of paper. It's a luxury often, because I know at the academy, I used to always start at, at eight o'clock. And then yeah. I knew nobody else was in the room. Yeah. Um, but if you started any later, if you started at 10 o'clock, it was already booked. Yes. So it was really tricky. It was really tricky. You literally, you're in and... And you, there they all are. You, yeah. you can't get settled for a while. It's, 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 it's not good. Liz, you, you've been fantastic again. Wonderful. Love, love all the advice. We've got a lot more to talk about. Of course. Again, we, we've just done number one. For our listeners, um, we're going to continue to do these series. And... I think it's quite good that we go off on tangents, um, but we will get into specifics. We will get into specifics of, you know, how to teach vibrato or breathing or posture or talk about repertoire or, you know, whatever it is. I, I mentioned at the end of our last podcast that if 
any of you've got any questions to send them in. You can go to our Facebook page, Talking Flute, and send messages, or you can email us at flutepodcast at gmail.com. And then Liz and I will confer with questions and answer as, as many as we can. So please send those questions. So thank you, Liz, and we'll talk again soon. Perfect. Lots of love. Yes, thanks, Liz. Bye. Talking Flutes and Talking Flutes Extra are podcast productions by the Trevor James Flute Company. For more information, visit trevorjamesflutes.com.